Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we wait, take wait, a wait, look. Josh, back. Josh, no, you what? didn't get permission. Hold on, let me let me do this for you. Calling Baranka, calling Baranka. Permission to start the podcast, Baranka. Permission <laughs> to start the podcast. Permission granted. <laughs> Welcome right. to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. On this end, my name is Josh Bell, <laughs> film critic and writer. And uh, are you out there, my co-host? Just dropping off some mail over this harrowing pass in the Andes Mountains. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and here it comes. Hello, Joshy. It's time for us to do a podcast. Not bad, actually. Not bad. I was waiting for Jason's uh, Cary Grant impression there because in this season on the films of 1939. We're here at Jason's Pick, and uh, it does star Cary Grant. Jason, what what did you pick? I picked Only Angels Have Wings by Howard Hawks, and like our 1953 season with The Wild One, it's a movie I had never seen before, but unlike the 1953 pick, this was a rousing success. I'm glad, because that is a risk. I don't think I've ever done this. I've always found something that I've seen. Um, so you never know how that will turn out, but I'm glad that, uh, whatever made you think this would be your kind of thing that it, uh, it turned out to be true. I mean, I really only did it cause I mean, we have so many major movies in 1939 and it felt like it wouldn't be a full season without talking about Howard Hawks and Cary Grant. And it, um, and I know you wanted to see it also. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a giver, I'm a giver. I give. Well, Again, it's great that it worked out for you because it would have been hilarious if you picked this movie and I liked it and you didn't. So that would have been uh, fine too, you know. Yeah. But uh but honestly, I don't know if I could watch a Cary Grant movie and not like it because he is the way I feel about like Paul Newman and Robert Duvall. Like I just love watching this guy all the time. He's so charismatic and it's so easy to see how Gene Arthur's character could show up here in Barranca the fictional South American town where Cary Grant is running this little podunk airmail service and meet him and in like five minutes be completely in love with him because he's so charming. It's it's like as an actor, I'm like watching and I'm like, how does he do this? It seems so effortless. Like they're all like almost like throwaways, but they all hit the right way. And he does that in every movie. Like he's so good at that. Like, um, you know, like, if you don't love me, I'm going to kill myself. Well, it was nice knowing you. And then it's just like moving on. Like, and it's just like, of course, like the more he rejects people, he's so cool that they, they just are drawn to him. Right. Yeah. And you, uh, you get it. I think it, it makes sense. So yeah, this is, um, this is one of the movies I think like it is now considered this kind of beloved classic, but at the time it wasn't necessarily as huge an acclaimed film. I mean, I feel like in nearly every episode we're talking about these movies and it's like, and this was nominated for eight Oscars. And <laughs> that wasn't quite the case here, but it was successful. It did gross $1 million at the box office. I don't know the budget. It's always hard to find figures for these movies from this time period. But uh, according to uh, some metrics, at least, it was the third highest grossing film of 1939. So a big movie at the box office. Um, it was nominated for one Oscar for Best Special Effects, which it did not win. And I don't know if we mentioned this in our Wizard of Oz episode, because that was also nominated for that award. But this was actually the first year 
for that category as a competitive category versus like an occasional special honorary award that was given out. I feel like this should have gotten some award for the flying sequences, which I know is not an award, but like it's 1939, you know, we know that like Howard Hughes is doing kind of cool stuff with uh, airplanes on film, but these flying sequences are amazing. Like, uh, I don't know, can you give an award for best use of transportation? I mean, it's <laughs> it's cinematography, it's kind of like practical effects, obviously. I don't know what you would give it for, but I, I think these sequences, they're so harrowing and tense and like they really, you know, you feel like you're in the Andes, not on the, you know, Columbia studio lot or wherever they shot them and uh, probably somewhere in the mountains of your Belinda or somewhere in California. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think partly that might be the special effects award because those shots are, you know, put together with special effects from the different kinds of footage. But I mean, really what it would be is what we're talking about even now, which would be like an award for best stunts. That's what that is. And, you know, even today, we're still waiting to see if the Oscars might add that kind of award. But the, the flying sequences are definitely amazing. Yeah. So I, uh, I think there should be stunt Oscars, don't you? Yeah, I think so. And oh, yeah. uh, maybe we'll get there. I, it seems like every year for the past several years, it comes up and it's like there's all this support for it, but it just doesn't happen for whatever reason. So maybe maybe we'll get there. But uh, no retroactive uh, Oscar for that, for this film. Uh, this was also intended to play at the 1939 Cannes Film Festival. But as we discussed in our Mr. Smith Goes to Washington episode, that festival didn't actually occur. But it was one of the American films that was in the program for that festival. And uh, critics, interestingly, again, because this is, this is, I think, a really highly regarded film now. But critics were more just mildly positive about this one when it was first released. So Frank S. Nugent in the New York Times said, the brew stirs slowly, as is the way with two-hour shows, tending towards silly romanticism in its dialogue, but moving splendidly whenever the plot's wheels leave the ground and take off over the Andes. Few things, after all, are as exciting as a plane in flames, or the metallic voices of a pilot in a fog-shrouded plane and the chap in the radio room, or a screaming power dive, or the wild downward swoop of a plane taking off from a canyon's rim. Mr. Hawks has staged his flying sequences brilliantly. He has caught the drama in the meeting of a flyer and the brother of the man he killed. He has made proper use of the amiable performing talents of Cary Grant, Gene Arthur, Thomas Mitchell, Richard Barthelmus, Sig Ruman, and the rest. But when you add it all up, Only Angels Have Wings comes to an overly familiar total. It's a fairly good melodrama, nothing more. Yeah, I'm going to disagree. I think you need, I mean, look, if it's just cool flying, you know, stuff, you know, that almost brings us back to like ice follies, right? Hey, we're on ice. <laughs> and But you need, you, you have to invest in these characters and care about these characters. The actors make you do that. It's a very smart script. So I just think uh, this one, you know, uh, gets the uh, green light to fly wherever it wants, Josh. Yeah, I think so too. I, I definitely feel like this movie does a good job of investing you in, in a lot of characters too. I mean, I think it's interesting the way this movie is structured because it starts out and you're sort of off kilter about like, who is this movie even about? You know, none of the real main characters show up even in the first few minutes until we get to Gene Arthur. And then you think, oh, it's about Gene Arthur and Cary Grant and they're going to fall in love or whatever. And then 
Yeah, sort of. But also, like, she disappears for long stretches, and it's about uh, Thomas Mitchell's character, and it's about the other uh, pilots, and it's about the dangers of flying, and it's about whether this business is going to keep going. And there's just so many different elements, but you really do care about a lot of it, I think, or even I even all of it. Right. So it starts with these two pilots who are working the mail routes and, you know, they eventually they meet uh, Jean Arthur as she comes off the, the ship and they like have a fun night in bars and I want to take her to dinner. I want to take her to dinner. And then, you know, one of the pilots is as we meet Cary Grant, who's the boss of the company, he's assigned to go and you know, deliver the mail and he crashes. But had he just crashed without us knowing him, it, w- it would have been kind of like, you know, the this uh, summer Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning where that whole first sequence is like, I don't even know, what are we calling that? The cube, the orb, the, what is oh, the, the entity, AI? I think the that's entity. what it's called. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the entity just destroys all these people on the submarine and you're like, cool, that was good effects, but you had no personal stake in their lives or anything like that. Whereas here you do and, you know, that guy's death also kind of really leads into Cary Grant and why his character is the way that it is. Right. And it also gives this this motivation to Jean Arthur, too, because, you know, she's been in this place for just a few hours and already she feels like she's almost responsible for this guy, you know, that he was reckless because he wanted to get back and have dinner with her or whatever. And so because we spent that time with them and got to know him a little bit, and saw that he could have connected with her, we definitely care a lot more. And I think also one of the things is that like, we as in the audience care, and we think, oh, what a tragedy, this is so sad. And we're right there with Gene Arthur, so that when the other pilots seem to be so callous, and they're like, they're like, who, who was Joe, or whatever, um, even in the audience, we're like, what's wrong with them? And because there's an emotional investment in him. I think, I think I almost look at it as like a war movie, right? Like you can, the other characters can care about this character, but they can't let it seep into their emotional lives because if they do, they're going to put themselves in danger. So they have to say, this is, you know, what the cost of the job is sometime. We all know the risks and it's sad, but we got to keep going. And, you know, that's why there are those scenes where every time a pilot dies, they go through whatever belongings he has left. And and they're like, hey, if you want a keepsake, you know, come and get it. And, it, and then they just move on. I think they that makes sense. Right. It makes sense to them because that's the only way they can kind of function. But I think for us in the audience, just like Gene Arthur, we're like, whoa, these people are messed up because they yeah. probably are. I remember when Gene Arthur said that in the movie. I was like, that's yeah, how it I was feel. good. Good dialogue. Really well, really yeah. excellent writing. So <laughs> uh, the age in Melbourne, Australia, in their unbyline. A new uh, one. Yeah, Josh. I had. I kind of stretched to find some reviews for this one. But this um, is our first Australian review. So I think is, it might be. Yes. So aha, uh, you figured it would have been a Peter Weir movie, but you were wrong. I don't think we've mm. talked about a Peter Weir movie, have we? Right. No, but he's Australian. So. He sure is. Many other mm-hmm. people are as well. Yes. <laughs> anyway, the Paul age Hogan. said <laughs> that's one. <laughs> Perilous aeroplane journeys in wild country in the vicinity of the Andes in South America form the basis of the film Only Angels Have Wings. Some of the scenes are remarkable examples of the producing art, and there is some excellent character acting. On the whole, however, the film does not reach the standard of aviation films such as Dawn Patrol, a weakness being in the story. Cary Grant plays with ease the role of Jeff Carter, a flyer with nerves of steel, who is in charge of the operations of the airlines. 
It is said that producers are gradually eliminating the embrace and kiss from films. If that be so, Cary Grant in this picture makes hay while the sun shines, even if it shines very fitfully. Hmm. What was the movie you mentioned there, Josh? It's, it's called Dawn Patrol. I think that's actually another Howard Hawks movie, although I haven't seen it. And the one I have referenced in my in my vast research, Josh, is mm. Flight Flight from Glory, a 1937 B movie that really brought flying more to the forefront and showcased what you were able to do with uh, airplanes in, in film. Right. I mean, I think either way, like these are not movies that are remembered nearly as well as only angels have wings are now so you know i mean they didn't necessarily have the perspective per se to know what would stand the test of time and what wouldn't but i mean it's interesting to see and this happens i think not infrequently in some of these older reviews where some movie that we know is this like major classic and reviewers are like oh it's not as good as this movie that people have completely forgotten about so that's interesting um i'm not sure i'm just looking at this now which version, because there is The Dawn Patrol, which is a Howard Hawks film starring Richard Barthelmus from this film, actually, mm. from 1930, but then it was also remade in 1938. Uh, so she may be referring, or whoever that is, may be referring to that one, which would have come out more recently. But uh, either way, neither of these are movies that like a lot of people remember now, I don't think. Dawn Patrol remade, much like Red Dawn has been remade since the original in the 80s, Josh. Yeah, Dawn. Similar movies with words in the title. <laughs> Got to watch out for those communists who are invading America, right? Yeah, you do. So uh, finally, uh, Marion Aitchison in the St. Petersburg Times in Florida. She was uh, more enthused than the other reviewers. She said, superlative performances on the part of principal and supporting players alike, coupled with a timely melodramatic story, make Only Angels Have Wings one of the outstanding pictures of the year. Cary Grant is superb as the airman, and Gene Arthur will win your entire approval as the entertainer who strives so desperately to prove to him that she can face frantic worry without buckling under. To highlight this melodramatic romance, there are flying sequences that are as exciting as any that have been filmed. All in all, Only Angels Have Wings is a triumph for director Howard Hawks and his cast. Well, that I mostly agree with. I mean, the, you know, the characters are well drawn and well written, but the the cast is great. Like they're just great. And Hawks, you know, is a legend for uh, what he's able to do with actors. So I agree with all those things. And, you know, we've already mentioned how cool the flying sequences are. Yeah, the flying sequences are great. And uh, I mean, she talks about the the way that Gene Arthur's character kind of shows that desperation like you know she has to prove that she's worthy i guess of Cary Grant and you know some of that is the the unfortunate sexual politics of this era but i feel like it's it's not it's more nuanced than a lot of the other movies from this time period might be and it attempts to present a relationship that could be more equal than a lot of other relationships in movies from this era. So I agree with you. Uh, I think Gene Arthur has one great movie star scene, but she does get kind of lost in like that uh, damsel in distress who's not in distress, just in love type thing. But at the same time, um, you know, yes, you're right. That is how this is often played between men and women. But I feel like not just Gene Arthur, not just women. 
but almost anyone who would come across Cary Grant, like I mean, the kid <laughs> is the kid is basically in love with Cary Grant too, and the kid is, that is the Thomas Mitchell character, not a yes. child. So right. you know, he's just so um, cap- captivating, charismatic. I think you could have made that anyone, and they would have all been like Dutchies loyal to him. They're all loyal to him in their own ways. He's just got that um, it factor to him. Yeah, no, that is true, and definitely the kid, the Thomas Mitchell character. I mean, at one point. He even says, Gene Arthur says, well, you love him too. And he's like, yes, I do. And I mean, obviously it's meant to be, you know, brotherly type love or whatever, but uh, there's maybe a little hint of something more. Yeah. <laughs> Josh's favorite subtext of the You Austin said it movie. first, <laughs> man. You said it first. <laughs> I, I, um, I agree. I mean, honestly, I mean, you're stuck in a small port town in, uh, in South America. Cary Grant striking figure comes along. Hey, man, yeah. <laughs> let's draw, let's deliver some mail to him. Right. So, but you're right. He does have that, that, that charisma. And I mean, and, and, and he's very good looking and this is, you know, young Cary Grant here um, with that dashing figure. So absolutely. You're right. It's easy to see, like I was saying before, how Gene Arthur could fall in love with him immediately. And then Rita Hayworth shows up and she was in love with him too. I mean, it's, it's everyone really. This is uh, Rita Hayworth's first major role in film. Yeah. And she certainly makes an impression as well. So. Um, had you uh, had you seen this before? Oh, obviously you hadn't seen this before. We no, I I, I only knew it. Like I only like was like, oh, Howard Hawks. I'll just pick this. So right. And you seen other Howard Hawks? Yeah, we, yeah, and we've covered Hawks on the show before as well. Right. So um, no, we've talked about some of my favorite Hawks movies, haven't we? I watched Bringing Up Baby before this. Uh, His Girl Friday, I love. So yeah, this is um, you know he, he's he's an OG legend right here, Josh. He is. Yeah, I've seen quite a few. And we did. We talked about Howard Hawks when we did our episode that was my pick on Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which Jason did not care for. No, but uh, I I do love that film. And I watched I mean, I've seen a, a number of Howard Hawks movies, but I did watch specifically before this 20th Century, which is a screwball comedy with John Barrymore and Carol Lombard, which I really didn't care for. And I feel like for whatever reason, some of those earlier Hawks, the screwball comedies, uh, bringing up baby that you just mentioned, I really ha- am not a fan of. And even his girl Friday, I was kind of like iffy on. I don't know. They just kind of grate on me. Something about the rhythms of them or whatever. I, mean, I like a lot re-watch. of other hawks. You should rewatch his girl Friday. When's the last time you saw it? It was a long time ago. It was definitely quite a while ago. Uh, I mean, um, I think it's the perfect. You know, uh, it's it's Grant, it's Rosalind Russell. They're just they're firing on all cylinders the way Hawks intends. Right. And I mean, obviously, that's a movie that everyone loves, but um, everyone but Josh, but me. <laughs> I mean, I think I liked it more than than those other two that I mentioned. But I mean, in terms of drama, I've I've really enjoyed other Howard Hawks movies. I the most recent one before this and 20th Century I'd seen was To Have and Have Not with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, which is really, really good. So, um, yeah, I, I've been a fan, but I had never seen this one. So, as you said, you're I welcome. Was, I was yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it, and I'm glad you picked it. So, um, Dave, had you seen this before? I had not. No, gentlemen, prefer blondes was the first one for me back then when we covered that, and glad to have watched this one too. All right, continue to expand Dave's horizons here. Damn right, movie here. All of our horizons with this one, Josh. True, this is an awesome movie. Your home run. It is. Mm-hmm. So uh, anything else you want to say about the background of this film? Yeah, I mean, this is in a way it's almost I'm not going to say it's based on a true story, but Hawks new pilots who had been through this were like, you know, uh, one had to eject because the plane was going down and the other per- person who was left in the plane died. So 
Um, that was a big deal. It was originally called Plane Number Four and Plane from Barranca. Uh, Plane Number Four was a story written by Ann Wigton, and then Hawks wrote Plane from Barranca. And of course, uh, we've mentioned William Rankin, I believe, and Eleanor Griffin, that, uh, who had uh, uncredited writing on this, and Jules Furtham, who did get the credit for it, was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay for Mutiny on the Bounty. All right. Yeah. Um, it, always interesting about how these stories come about. And I think they were, they combined those two stories, and then they were also, you know, rewriting during production. And this went over by like 31 days or something during, uh, during principal photography. So uh, it, impressive that it still came together so wonderfully. It was the uh, third highest grossing film of 1939. Yeah. So uh, we'll come back then and talk more of our general thoughts on Only Angels Have Wings. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1939, we are talking about Jason's pick, Only Angels Have Wings. And Jason, since you hadn't seen this and you picked it, like, what did you anticipate and did it kind of live up to your specific uh, expectations for it? Uh, it exceeded all of those. So, I, I mean, you know, I tried to know as little as possible about it. Sometimes it's fun to do that, right? And I couldn't help but thinking, I'm, I'm wondering if you guys did too. It very much felt like uh, Wages of Fear which we covered in our 53 sure. season, right? This is so much, so much so to the point where uh, one of the missions is bombing mountains with nitroglycerin, right? Or something like that, which was a big plot point in, in the wages of fear, how they were transporting that. And this was like a town at the end of the world where people are just trying to get by. So it definitely felt like this was a huge influence on that. Um, yeah. Like I said, like I'm on a Cary Grant kick right now, you know, since we, um, started this i i watched charade the other day i'm in the middle of notorious now i watch bringing up baby like I'll, I'll watch anything that guy does but i just feel like you know we're talking about a bunch of legends who are all hitting on um big cylinders here um so josh before i go further what do you what, what do you feel about that well first of all i 100 percent agree with you i definitely thought of the wages of fear as i was watching this and they're yeah they're transporting i mean what happens is eventually they they'd have to dump the nitroglycerin on the mountain because they can't get the plane to where they're supposed to go. But the the plan is they're supposed to transport it just like in the wages of fear, right. except they have to, you know, fly to this mine or whatever, instead of, instead of driving. But yeah, I totally thought of it because of that scene. But also, as you were saying, this town that's sort of in the, the, the middle of nowhere where people come because they have nowhere else to go. You know, these pilots, are not exactly, you know, they're not getting hired by major airlines or whatever. Cary Grant is the only one who's going to give them a job. And of course, especially the Richard Barthelmus character who comes in, who's a, this pariah, even among the pilots in Barranca, but uh, he manages to get hired if he'll do the most dangerous mission. So I, I'm sure that that was an influence on on the Wages of Fear. And, uh, and I definitely appreciated that about it. So you mentioned uh, the, the the McPherson character. That's yeah. uh, that's the and you know this is one of the things that was so good about it, right? So this Bat McPherson character has this reputation. No one will hire him because he ejected from a plane that he was piloting, and his mechanic, who's the kid's older brother, was trapped in the plane and died. So no one trusts this guy anymore. Meanwhile, his wife is Cary Grant's ex, right? You know, that's the Rita Hayworth character who 
uh, you know, he he says he's glad that they broke up, but at the same time, it has lasting effects on him. You could tell that. And then the kid is Cary Grant's right hand man and like the most loyal pilot that he has, and he's ailing with his own uh, physical uh, maladies. He's he's losing his eyesight, so he won't be around for much longer. So you have all these combustible elements. They did a great job of kind of building conflicts before actually showcasing the conflicts. Yeah, I mean, and like I was saying before, I think that's what's impressive here is that you think this is about one thing, and it is, but it's also about so many other things, and they really weave that together so effectively. And uh, right, whether it's the kid or it's uh, Rita Hayworth, it's Gene Arthur, it's, you know, and the other pilots who resent McPherson because, as you said, he can't be trusted. And I mean, all the different dynamics here. And I, I do love the dynamic. One of the things that, that I think was really amusing is we don't know why the kid is called the kid, right? That's just his nickname. And everyone calls him that. But also, he, he and I think other people, they, they all call Cary Grant, presumably because he's the boss. Papa. They call him like Papa. Yeah. And so I love that Thomas Mitchell is obviously you know, significantly older than Cary Grant, but here he is being called the kid and calling, and he's calling Cary Grant Papa. And I think that shows that this sort of inverted dynamic of like the authority figure versus the sort of almost child figure or whatever. And I, I liked that way that that was presented. Right. And the kid has so many skills. I, I was a little disappointed that he didn't say uh, because of my because of Stranger Things, it would have been fun if he had said goodbye, Papa, like Eleven does. But anyway, that's a deep cut there. But yes, I think I mean, look, let's talk about Thomas Mitchell, who has, you know, as we as we have anointed Rob Reiner as jokingly the awesome movie or director. Thomas Mitchell has to be our first awesome movie year actor in the Hall of Fame just for 1939 alone, right? This is our fourth or third, the third is, of the five is, that we're covering yeah. with him, right? Yeah, this is the third. Uh, we talked about him in Stagecoach, which was the role he won an Oscar for, and in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington before this. Right, and we're going to get to him in a in a some movie that probably no one's heard of called Gone with the Wind, right? So <laughs> yeah, um, so he did those four in Hunchback of Notre Dame and all in thirty nine. As I was telling you the other day, this he seems like the most in demand character actor of the time, right? The way that like Philip Seymour Hoffman or John C. Riley, the or Steve Buscemi, any of these guys, you know, that we love as character actors. Um, it just seems like he he was this guy and he delivers every single time. Right. I mean, he does bring so much. I mean, he won that Oscar for Stagecoach, but he's really good in all of these roles. And they're all supporting roles and all characters who are maybe at times a little ridiculous, but he brings such depth and such pathos to them. And the same thing goes here for the kid that we really feel. I mean, there's maybe more tragedy to this character than there uh, is to those other two characters that we've seen him play thus far. But, but still, I mean, we really feel that emotion and we really identify with him and, and root for him or whatever along his arc in this film. So this would have been out of the three that I watched. This is the most um, from this year. This is the one that I think is the best performance. And that doesn't mean the other two aren't great. I just think, like you said, there's maybe a little more going on with this character. And he really does showcase uh, those emotions in, in, you know, that, that kind of pain and that longing and um, that, that um, almost uh, his worth is almost kind of 
based on what he's able to do as a pilot, right? So I think this is the best showcase for him. Yeah, I mean, again, he won that Oscar for Stagecoach. That that role has more broad comedy moments in it before we get to the the, the pathos of it. Maybe that showed more range or something. But I agree with you. I think there's the most depth in this role of the three that we've seen him in thus far this season. Um, and I think what you're saying about how his worth is tied to being able to be a pilot. I think that's true for all of these characters. I mean, he's the one who's older. And like you said, his, his eyesight is failing and he's going to be grounded. But I feel like any of these characters, Cary Grant or, or even, you know, the minor pilot characters or, or McPherson, right, who has become ostracized and a pariah. And yet he's still trying to, he has to get a job as a pilot because he needs to get back up there. All of them basically tie their self-worth to the ability to fly planes. I think so. I mean, you know, um, with the kid, he talks about how he started flying. I think it was like 1917, right? That's yeah, what he, he says. says 22 years ago. So yeah, that would be. Right. And he's like, yeah, you, you can't complain about that. Who would have thought I would have had 22 years doing this, right? So he's still finding, you know, and he goes on a mission that he shouldn't go on at the end. And he's still, uh, he's a lifer in this business. And you could see that. Um, the Bartholomew, is it, how do you pronounce his last name? Yeah, I Josh? think it's Bartholomew. I don't know. I'm just guessing. So I didn't really know who Richard Bartholomew was before this, this movie, but I guess, you know, what I learned is he was a huge silent film star and Hawks was one of the directors who kind of kept working with him when talkies started, but he had a, um, uh, plastic surgery that went wrong that, that left all these scars um, or a scar on his face. And um, whenever he would work after that, he would use makeup to cover it up. But Hawk said the character should have that scar shown. And that's the reason that um, they went with his real physical appearance, which, you know, clearly adds to that backstory of that crash and him escaping with his life. Yeah, I um, I haven't seen any of his silent films. He's one of those silent film stars who didn't really have a successful transition to talkies. He was in some films. And like you said, Hawks, I think, kind of fought for getting him in this movie, wanted to work with him. But I saw him in a in a Betty Davis movie called The Cabin in the Cotton, where he's really not good. And is one of those movies where sometimes you can tell, like, actors who are big in silent films can't transition to a different style of acting in talkies. And I think that might have been the case in that film. But here, he fits in well, I think. And, and maybe because, in part, this character is kind of uh, reserved and stoic and he doesn't uh he he he's able to underplay which is the opposite of what a lot of silent film performers would do yeah there's a whole weight to what his past has you know played into his present like you you feel that kind of uh whether it's guilt or kind of like you're saying the the um banishment of him and how that's played into his psyche um, he's got a beautiful wife that he's like, I don't even know if I could provide for her. And so when Grant says, I'll hire you, but you're going to take every, all, all the most dangerous missions. Like, it's almost like, yeah, well, I should be doing that. I have to prove myself again. Right. I mean, he's being punished, but he's also punishing himself as much as anyone else is punishing him because I mean, he clearly feels guilt and remorse for what he had, what he did. I think so. Uh, Josh, we'll talk about the ladies. You know, we talked about Gene Arthur and uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. And I almost felt like that character offered more here. There was this one great movie star scene here. You know, everything else was like, oh, um, I'm meeting the boys. I'm in love with this man. I'm here. I'm supportive. But she's this piano player. And obviously, this is a small 
end of the world town. There's no entertainment. They have this bar that Dutchie owns, who also owns the mail uh, company here. And, you know, there's always nightly entertainment and people playing guitar and, and singing. And she gets on the piano and she has a real movie star turn there with that song. Uh, I thought that was like her showcase scene in this thing. Yeah. And that's a great moment, too, because it starts out with Cary Grant sitting at the piano. And as we've said, he's Cary Grant. He's so charming. He can do anything. And he's kind of trying to pluck out this song and he's not doing it well. And she keeps interrupting him like, no, do it like this. Do it like this. And he seems to be like, OK, lady. OK, woman. Sure. You know how to do stuff. And and then she finally shoves him aside and she's like this great piano player. And I think it's sort of a little moment to show him up too, like, hey, dude, you don't know everything. Like, I actually really know what I'm doing. Here. Uh, well, I think that's a recurring theme in Grant movies, right? Where he thinks he always knows best and ends up as the butt of the joke. And he just is able to sell all those things so perfectly. So that to me is is my favorite scene with her. Um, as far as Rita Hayworth, she's smoldering. She's beautiful. This performance, I think, is up and down. You know, there's the the scene where she's drunk or she's crying. And I don't think... I don't think uh, anyone would say that this is the best Rita Hayworth performance. Right. I mean, it's a smaller role, but yeah, I feel like there were a couple moments where she was maybe overdoing it a little, maybe feeling like this is here's my moment to shine or something like that. But you can see how she became this huge sex symbol or whatever. I mean, she definitely pops on the screen as soon as she shows up. And, you know, can you can also see how these men both were were smitten with her or whatever. Whereas not that Jean Arthur isn't beautiful or charismatic, but she has more of that like flinty kind of tough girl uh, style to her. And, you know, maybe it takes Cary Grant a little while to realize that that he's in love with her just as she's in love with him. I, um, I have a question for you, Josh. This is, I was, you know, I'm watching the movie. There's this pilot gent, right? And, um, with that nitroglycerin run, he says, whoa, 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 there's nothing in my contract about doing this. I don't have to do this. I'm not going to do this. It's too dangerous. And, and Cary Grant and everyone's like, no, that makes sense. You don't have to do it. But then Cary Grant fires him. And I don't think he could fire him for that. Pretty sure there are no labor laws in Barranca. <laughs> <laughs> Calling Barranca. Please get a copy of the laborer's handbook, Barranca. I mean, I think that's why they set up these airlines in places like that and not in, you know, like uh, New York City or whatever, because uh, also safety regulations don't seem to be a thing there in Barranca. Oh, yeah. The more dangerous, the more um, the more enthused the pilots are to go up in, in the weather. Right. I mean, I love too at the in the in the opening of the film. Right. You know, after the pilot that, that Gene Arthur first meets after he dies and. Uh, the the weather is bad, right? They can't fly again and he's just died. And so they're all in the bar and they're drinking and they're drinking and they're drinking. And then finally the weather clears and Cary Grant has had so much to drink. And he's like, give me some coffee. I'm going up. And he's like drunk flying the plane. And this is the hero of the film. That's the 1930s, Josh. Come on. Right. It's the <laughs> 1930s. Although I would imagine that, I mean, I guess I would hope that even in 1939, maybe in America, pilots were not allowed to fly drunk. Well, as you said, this is Barranca, the, right. the land of no laws. In, in that scene, I for a moment there, I thought that he said to load coffee into the plane like like fuel, like, <laughs> like he was confused, you know? 
<laughs> and, no, and, and it, just, instead it was just you who was confused Dave. Yeah, yeah of course but but right all it takes is he he drinks a cup of coffee and he's good to go and obviously that's true i mean right he flies it with no problem that's because he's Cary grant he no, it's no big deal he can fly drunk it's all good yeah so i just uh three three other things i wanted to touch on josh yeah. um one we're kind of we're kind of almost talking about it the the mix of like dramatic plot but there's some really funny moments in here. And these, you know, it's Hawks, it's Grant, it's Arthur. Like, these are really expert comic actors. And I think that mix, which doesn't always work, and especially, you know, this is the 30s. It's not really like, you know, action comedies were a big thing back then, right? Like, it really, really works in this film. Yeah, I think so. And we get some almost screwball-y moments with like the, the you know, farcical slamming doors kind of thing as Gene Arthur is taking a bath in Cary Grant's room and he comes in and there she is in the bathroom and he suddenly comes across her. And then when she comes out, then Rita Hayworth comes in and she leaves and then Thomas Mitchell shows up and it's this sort of like, uh, you know, revolving door thing. That's very screwball comedy in that scene. Yeah, I think, uh, and it works, it works really well here. Um, and I, I also wanted to say, you know, kind of almost going back to that, uh, wages of fear talk. Uh, one of the items that makes both of these so successful is um, you actually feel like you're in that town. And, you know, we know this was shot in Southern California, but you feel like this is a skeezy, like kind of lawless port town Uh, here. It's in South America, but it could have been in anywhere like this end of the world town. I think they did a great job with the environment. Yeah, I agree. And like you said, I mean, stuff like this, it's not like it was shot on location. It's generally just on sound stages or whatever, but it does feel very real and it feels very lived in. And I appreciated that, you know, something basic that they wouldn't have necessarily done in thirties movies that like the local characters, they speak Spanish and they don't suddenly just start speaking English or whatever. And Cary Grant keeps having to say like, what is he talking about? Because Cary Grant doesn't speak Spanish. And so all of that added up to, even though this is a fictional town in an unnamed country, like it does feel like a believable place where all of these people could end up. Right. Um, you had mentioned the, that they're, hey, they, the weather cleared. We got to fly the mail. They, they have a great plot device, a ticking clock, where if they deliver the mail every day for six months, they get like a huge government contract and they save Dutchie's business. Right. So the fact that that that's on the line on all these flights makes it so you can't just be like, well, we're not going to fly because it's raining out. Right. So I think they did a really good job of motivating um, the actions in this film. Right. I think so, too. Although, on the other hand, sometimes as they're taking these insane risks and all getting injured and dying, I'm like, for the mail? For the fucking mail? So somebody can write a letter to their grandma? Come on. But, you know, that was that was what it was then, I guess. Right. And it's again, it's the it's I don't think it's for the mail. I think it's because, you know, they're going to make a ton of money and that, you know, money. um, Trump's all Josh. Well, I think, yeah, true. But I think it's it's even more than that. It's what we were saying before, which is that these people are addicted to this risk and they're addicted to the rush of flying. And it could be the mail. It could be anything. It almost doesn't even matter. They feel the need, the need for speed. Well, I mean, you know, we talk about the wages of fear, but obviously Top Gun, this has got to be a massive influence on that. I think you're right. I mean, honestly, the the flying sequences are so incredible. It's probably any movie that utilizes uh airplanes to in this type of uh 
way has probably looked at this film and been like, yeah, this is this is a good blueprint for us. Right. Right. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Dave, did you have any particular things that you enjoyed about this? Um, I mean, I wasn't as taken with like the romance angle of it all. Like I particularly like the action, the the flying scenes, you know, all that stuff. The, the setting Jason was talking about, I thought was like really well done where you felt like you were in that town. Um, there's a lot of things to like about it, though. And uh, overall, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I did, too. I mean, I, I I can understand what you're saying about the romance. I mean, I bought it, but I wasn't necessarily super swept up in it. But to me, it was mm. like, well, that's not really the issue, per se, because there's so much else going on. And sure. for the amount of time they spend on the romance, I was cool. So, mm. you know, I, I'm with Dave on that. I think that's also something of the time period where, you know, people meet and after five minutes, I mean, and, you know, whether oh, yeah, that's yeah. from the film or because of the fact that like, it's just societal differences, right? From the, how we live now, you know, people were always falling in love and planning marriages within like the first 10 minutes of movies, it felt like. <laughs> yeah, no, that is absolutely true. And I think that was one thing that I was saying is that like, sometimes that's really tough to buy into in a movie from this era. But when you have someone with the charisma of Cary Grant, and I think the chemistry that they, he and Gene Arthur have, you can buy into it more easily. That, that they really did fall in love or that she fell in love. Maybe it takes a little longer for him to fully fall in love, but that that really did happen within that short period of time. So I, I bought it. Um, should we rate this out of uh, five horrific plane crashes? I was going to just say five bail planes, which was a much nicer way to go. But, I, I, you know, that's fine. <laughs> I gave it four mail planes. It delivered the mail and on time for me. It's uh, it holds up, buddy. Yeah, I'm going to give it three and a half uh, crashes. So maybe uh, one survivor there at the end. But is it, uh, uh, is it Bat McPherson? No, nah, screw him. It's the kid. We got to let the kid live. Right. We really wanted him to survive. We wanted him to pull through. We did. Um, but uh, not no, so it didn't much. Happen. It didn't happen. Yeah. But, uh, but no, I enjoyed this film. I'm glad that I got to see it. I did want to see it. And uh, I think it's really uh, an, an entertaining film. If you like Cary Grant, if you like Howard Hawks, or just want to see amazing stunts that still look amazing, um, you know, it's absolutely worth checking out. So Dave, how would you rate it? Uh, we found the other half of Josh's plane because I also gave it three and a half. So, oh, so the yeah. kids died after <laughs> all. <laughs> we'll come back and talk about the legacy of Only Angels Have Wings. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1939, we have been talking about Jason's pick, Only Angels Have Wings. And as we said, we have talked about Howard Hawks before. We did an episode on Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And what an amazing career this guy had. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane how much he did over the course of nearly... 50 years as a director. I mean, I just keep looking at all, I mean, these guys from, you know, we just mentioned Thomas Mitchell's 30, 39, but, uh, you know, Grant and Hawks worked together five times. Let's look at 1938, 39, and 40, bringing up baby, only angels have wings and his girl Friday. <laughs> like, come on, dude, what, what is happening here? Right. I mean, and Howard Hawks was so good at so many different genres. I mean, as much as I was sort of critical of those screwball comedies. I mean, those are some of the most famous comedies of all time. He's also hugely known for Westerns like Rio Bravo and Red River and El Dorado. Uh, he directed the original Scarface. 
you know, I mentioned to have and have not, which was great. But I mean, that even that, which is so good, is not even the most famous movie he made with Bogart and Bacall because he also directed The Big Sleep and, uh, you know, was working all the way until 1970 when he made his final film, which was another Western called Rio Lobo, which I haven't seen, but I think is sort of an unofficial remake of Rio Bravo. I mean, he's worked with pretty much every big star that you could want to work with. Um, he was only nominated for Best Director for Sergeant York, Josh. Of all these movies, one nomination? Come on. Yeah, that's crazy. And uh, I haven't seen Sergeant York. I've seen a bunch of those other ones. But um, you mentioned His Girl Friday, how much you love that. Is there any other Hawks movie that you saw or that is a favorite? Um, I'm sticking with His Girl Friday for now, Josh. Yeah. That's so. that's a that's a good choice. But we gotta but we gotta, you know, I we might have mentioned this on Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, who um not the Marilyn Monroe character, but the other lead was kind of that Hawksian woman. And you know, you really get that, I think, in uh His Girl Friday, that fast talking, you know, uh laser wit, you know, the the woman who can hold her own against anybody, which at this time was a different thing. And um, you know, I know with this one that he wanted Gene Arthur to kind of encapsulate that and she just never kind of went with it. And then you had mentioned college, I have and have not. And uh, what I had read was after Gene Arthur had seen that movie, she like drove to Howard Hawks's house and he didn't know he was there. And he, she said that, um, that she saw the movie and, and then she said, I wish I'd done what you'd asked me to do. If you ever make another picture with me, I promise I'll do any goddamn thing you want me to. If a kid, Lauren Bacall can come in and do that kind of stuff, I could certainly do it. But they never worked together again. Yeah. But Hawk said he enjoyed her, but uh, working with her, but didn't feel like he was able to help her as he was able to help other actors that he worked with. So. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I understand. Bacall is, is fantastic into Have and Have Not, of course. But I think she does get across a lot of that. I think that's one of the things like I was talking about earlier, that you get the sense that this can be an equal relationship between her and Cary Grant's character because she has that that Hawksian kind of grit or whatever, and maybe not in the same way as Rosalind Russell and his girl Friday, but this is not a screwball comedy. So you don't want it to be played the same way exactly. So I don't know. I think he maybe brought more of that out of her than they realized. Yeah, that's possible. Should we talk about just, should we talk about Kevin Grant? <laughs> you're, you're still, you're still not quite there. Although I will say it's better than your Jimmy Stewart. Now, why would you say a thing like that? <laughs> uh yeah i mean Cary grant really like him and jimmy stewart i feel like these are the, the 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 iconic movie stars of classic hollywood you know male movie stars of classic hollywood as you said he worked with hawks a bunch of times i mean he worked with all so many of the great directors he's also known for his work with alfred hitchcock in in notorious as you mentioned north by northwest to catch a thief suspicion all great great movies uh, he was great in in screwball comedies, like with Hawks. Also, you know, we talked about Leo McCary when we did our episode on Love Affair, and they made a bunch of movies together, including The Awful Truth, which is a fun screwball comedy, and the remake of Love Affair, uh, An Affair to Remember. Uh, he worked all the way uh, into the 60s, his final film, Walk, Don't Run, in 1966. Uh, and then he retired to raise his daughter, which is uh, such a nice thing. Yeah, he was a uh, successful businessman after that. But I, just, I don't. I, it's tough to place this guy because he's so singular. Like, there's no one really like him, right? You know, he he delivers everything, and you believe everything that he's doing. But he's just so adept at like comedy without trying, or seemingly without trying. I just love that about him. You know, he's just everything he does is 
the right choice, it feels like to me. Yeah. And I think that that comedy is a way, you know, especially being self-deprecating or like you were saying, where he has often these moments where his character is kind of overconfident and then gets shown up or whatever. And in a way that that sort of makes you more inclined to like him where you might be like, oh, who is this pretty boy or whatever? You know, he's so good looking and he's so suave and and I kind of am, am suspicious of that or whatever. But he's also so able to laugh at himself that he gets you on his side. And you're right, he's very singular. I feel like George Clooney gets compared to him a lot and he has some of that similar quality where he's so good looking and so suave, but yet he's really good at making a fool of himself in an endearing way. Well, he doesn't talk like this though, Josh. So that's a point. So, no, he uh, doesn't. That's true. Do you have a favorite of his work with Hitchcock? I, I rewatched North by Northwest uh, this week, and it, it was just a delight to rewatch that. Yeah, I've seen all those movies, but not in a long time. I do love North by Northwest. Um, although I feel like North, like in, I'm sure he's great, um, but I feel like that's more about like the big set pieces that Hitchcock constructs. Um, I remember liking To Catch a Thief a lot, which is very much about like you know the kind of sexiness and the chemistry um with him and grace kelly so uh that may be more similar to what he's got going on here with gene arthur or what he does in those screwball comedies but it's been a really long time since i've seen any of those hitchcock movies so yeah those set pieces in north by northwest are legendary iconic but what makes those tick so well is the first act is set up so brilliantly and it's all really him getting into this position that he shouldn't be in and that's why the whole motor of that movie works. So I think I think you should rewatch it. Give it a shot. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that I didn't like it. I, I mean, I did like it a lot. But, you know, I think that's what sticks in my mind more than his performance. But maybe if I watched it again, the performance would stick out to me more. Um, like Hawks, you know, he was nominated for Oscars. He didn't win a competitive Oscar at all. He uh, got an honorary Oscar in 1970. Uh, and recently... I haven't seen this, but there was a miniseries, uh, a biopic miniseries about his life called Archie, which was his his given name, uh, starring Jason Isaacs. And I'm not sure. I, I'd be curious to see, like, it's got to be tough to play Cary Grant because that voice, right? It's so iconic, but it's also been done so much and parodied so much that I feel like if you did it too accurately, it would almost come off like a a, a parody. So you're saying mine is really top notch because... <laughs> I don't really sound like it. I'm just doing kind of a thing here, Josh. Now I got into Catherine Hepburn territory. That Hello, yeah, Joshy. maybe a little bit yeah. of uh, Terrence and Philip from South Park. <laughs> Hello, Jesse. <laughs> Judy, Judy, Judy. You know the thing is, um, what you know, he was born in England and he came over here and uh, at a young age, and I think that that kind of regal yet non-English accent. I don't know. I, I don't know. There's just no one like him. Yeah, I mean, he's doing a bit of what they call the mid-Atlantic accent, which right. is the fake, the fake accent that was made up for movies um, that a lot of actors do. But it's a, definitely his own distinctive version. You're right. No one sounds like Cary Grant unless they're trying to do a Cary Grant impression. It's interesting because I, I feel like, again, there are all these scenes where like he's able to like kind of take the backseat in the scene, but he's still like the driver of the scene because people will be like, I'm really upset. And he'll be like, you are? And they'll be like, yeah, you don't know what happened. Well, tell me what happened to you. And it's just like a lot of that kind of uh, patter, rep repetitive patter that he's able to kind of push along. So I don't know, man. I just think um, the actors really hit this one hard. Yeah, I agree. 
you 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 briefly did that uh, Judy 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 or whatever, which I was waiting for it because that's a weirdly like famous Cary Grant thing. But it's one of those things, and I was reading this somewhere um, that like because I literally Googled Judy 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 because I was like, well, he didn't say Judy, it in this Judy Judy. He didn't say it in this film, right? Rita Hayworth's character is named Judy, and he talks to her. Like, he says her name a lot, but he never says it specifically in that way. And uh, it's one of those things like, like play it again, Sam, where he never actually said it. It was just from people's impressions of him. And then it became known as a thing that he would say and people in public would mm. bug him to like say the line. And he, but it wasn't ever a line that he actually said in any movie. Well, isn't that, what is it? The Luke, I am your father or what's the one in Star Wars that's like Yeah, that? yeah. He says it's a, just the, the like construction of how it is. Like play it again, Sam. He never says that, but he does say play it again. Um, right. You know, or beam me up, Scotty is something that they never actually said on Star Trek, things like that. Right. But, um, you know, he spent his whole life uh, having people uh, hound him about saying that. Josh, shout out to our boy uh, Sig Ruman, who played Dutchie, a comic foil for many Marx Brothers uh, films A Night at the Opera, a Day at the Races, and A Night in Casablanca. And, uh, you, you know, he worked with Ernst Lubitsch a lot. He was in Danichka the same year. And he also worked with Billy Wilder a good amount. Yeah, some uh, amazing filmmakers. And Ninochka is great. I think that's uh, one we're not uh, we're not getting to, but it is a very enjoyable film that I rewatched recently. Um, really entertaining romantic comedy. Um, Rita Hayworth, this was a breakthrough. As we said, she'd been in movies before, but this was really the, the role that got her noticed. She became this major pinup girl during World War II. All the you know pilots. Number one, their... the number one pinup girl in the world. Right, World and I don't know how they quantified that, but they maybe they probably the survey. most poster sold or something right. like that. Yeah, right, and they would you know put her photo up in their planes and things like that. Um, you know, she's known for playing a femme fatale. Her most famous role in Gilda with Glenn Ford. She was also uh, a big role in Lady from Shanghai, which is an Orson Welles film. And you know, I think of. Uh, the 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 sort of her status as a pinup because you know we did our episode on the Shawshank Redemption and uh, the poster of Rita Hayworth is the first one that Andy Dufresne uses to cover up his uh, hole that he's making in his cell and the original title of that the, the Stephen King story is actually Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption is the title of it. That's true. Uh, she made two films with Fred Astaire. You'll never get rich and you were never lovelier. And Astaire once said she was his favorite dance partner. Take that, uh, I mean, Ginger Rogers. Right. I was going to say, I haven't seen those films, but uh, that's really kind of uh, an insult to both Ginger Rogers and Sid Charisse, who is amazing, an amazing dancer and made yeah. good movies with Fred Astaire uh, as well. Maybe he was just kind of, you know, it was the publicity for one of those movies and he had to kind of build it up. Who knows? So Right. That is possible. Um, hey, Josh, here's a fun fact for you. You know, I love fun facts, Josh. You do. Uh, calling Baranka. Calling Baranka became a recurring line in Looney Tunes cartoons. You know, I feel like I should oh, know that because yeah. I'm sure I watched Looney Tunes cartoons as a kid and heard that and didn't know what the hell it was. I bet if we looked at, you know, just YouTube search calling Baranka Looney Tunes, you would you would re remember it. Like you would see like, oh yeah, I remember that. So Right, right. I feel like that old those old Looney Tunes cartoons are full of so many like pop culture references to stuff from the 30s and 40s that kids in the 80s were watching and didn't have any idea what it was and just <laughs> rolled with it. Hey, oh, I'm yeah. with it. I love Looney Tunes, bro. I I was always a Looney Tunes guy over like a Disney guy. Yeah, I I think I was mainly just cuz it was like on Nickelodeon in the afternoons or something like that and I would watch those cartoons when I came home from school. 
It would have been weird if uh, one of the planes got uh, lost in the air and the pilot said, I knew I shouldn't have made that left turn at Albuquerque. Yeah, because they're nowhere near Albuquerque either. Exactly. So. <laughs> Anything else you want to mention about the legacy of this film, Jason? No, I mean, it's there. It's You got to go watch it, dude. Yeah, I agree. I think enthusiastic recommendations from all of us on this film. So that is Only Angels Have Wings, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can fly on over to our uh, social media and online presence. AwesomeMovieYear.com on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Abortion. And of course, you can uh, letterbox us with the hashtag Awesome Movie Year. I'm go for Jason on Letterbox, Jason Harris Comedy, or Jay Harris Comedy on all the socials. You can find some old stuff from me at joshbellhateseverything.com. I'm at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook and at SignalBleed on <laughs> Jason now has called this abortion two episodes in a row. I really hope this doesn't become a thing. I'm at SignalBleed on Twitter or X as well as on Blue Sky and on Letterboxd. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Josh, we are covering a... Now get this, Josh. It was a book, and then they made it into a movie, and it's called Wuthering Heights. It is uh, one of our award winners. We we kind of uh, stretched a bit to find a different one. We usually do a film festival there, but it is actually the New York Film Critics Circle award winner because uh, that was the best option for us. So tune in next time for Wuthering Heights. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.